Welcome. Uh, we are delighted y'all are here for our second week of our Lenten teaching series. As y'all know, our theme this year uh, comes from Acts 2.42, talking about the early church, uh, that the disciples, uh, what they were doing, and it was they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Uh, last week, we were blessed to have Corey Prescott with us teaching on the apostles' teaching, and uh, this week, uh, we have the Reverend David Barr uh, to teach us on uh, the breaking of the bread, right? Okay, I don't want to give him the wrong topic at the last I minute. Was, I, thought was, I thought it was dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's pray for David real quick, and I'll turn it over to him and let him introduce himself a little more fully. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, again, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. Pray now that you would open our hearts and open our minds uh, to your grace and to your truth, and that you would pour out the abundance of your blessing and your mercy on us, and particularly on our speaker, David. Pray that his words would be your words, and that through the power of your Holy Spirit, and through your grace and through your mercy, they might transform and shape our lives uh, to the benefit of us, uh, and to the benefit of your holy church. We ask all this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, join me as we welcome David Barr. Thank you. Thanks. Y'all hear me all right? Is this good? Um, so yeah, my name, my name is David Barr. I grew up in Sumter, uh, just, you know, 30 miles down the road. Um, I haven't lived in Sumter in 14 years, though, so I'm, I'm feeling, I'm glad to be back in the PD area. Um, I am at the Cathedral Church of St. Luke in St. Paul, and I'm the scholar in residence there, which basically means I'm writing my dissertation in Charleston, um, which is a better place to write a dissertation than where my degree is from, the University of Toronto. So <clears throat> very glad to be in uh, sunny weather. Um, my background is, has been largely in uh, Christian ethics, the field of uh, moral philosophical ethics and uh, Christian ethics in um, and I do have, you know, been aspiring to be a theologian, so forgive me if my talk gets a little soaring at times. Um, but Ken, uh, Ken invited me to talk about uh, breaking of bread, and when he first asked me about that, I thought I'd kind of gotten the short end of the straw a little bit. I sort of wanted doctrine, if I'm being honest, the teaching of the apostles. Um, but uh, the more I thought about it, the more uh, this is a fascinating topic breaking of bread. So today, I, I hope that y'all will let me, this will be a, a mild thought experiment. I, I thought a little bit about it beforehand, I promise, but will you think with me a little bit as we uh, reflect on, on food and eating, sharing our lives together? Um, to, to kick us off, I'm just going to read the section of Acts chapter 2 that we're, we're dealing with. I think because this is once a week, it's probably good to rehearse in your mind what's going on here. To remind you, this is the latter part of Acts chapter 2. The Spirit has already come down on the apostles and the community that's gathered around the apostles. And um, it's, a, it's a moment of the, within the formation of the Christian community where it's, the stuff has happened and it's almost as if, what now? What now? So beginning at 42. And they, the gathered uh, fellowship of Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all, uh, 
and all belie who believed were together, sorry, I copy and pasted from the ESV app, which doesn't work sometimes, believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day to those who were being saved. Would you pray with me real quick? Lord, we do thank you that you gather us, that our coming together is your work. And Lord, we ask that we would break bread together with uh, sincere joy and gratitude. We pray that the practice of eating together would shape our hearts to be gracious towards you and to one another. And we ask that you would transform us through our daily habits and rituals. We pray this in the name of Jesus the Almighty. Amen. Alrighty, so <clears throat> I, I thought I realized how cool of a topic this was a few weeks ago. Ken asked me to do this weeks ago, so I've had, had time to think about it. I was eating at, uh, I live two blocks away from King Street, which is like food mecca in South Carolina, obviously. It's food, everything, people travel there to eat. Um, it's like food Disney World. So I was eating at, um, eating at Smoke Barbecue. It's a barbecue place. A friend had come into town, and we got to talking how, uh, how much we were actually dissatisfied with the barbecue. We thought it wasn't that great, but um, you should go and check it out regardless. Um, and we remembered a time, this was a friend from college, and we, uh, right after college, decided that we wanted to do our own barbecue. We wanted to do our own cookout, but do it the old-fashioned way. So we went to, like, Jimmy's Feed Store and Rim and I, wherever it was in Tennessee, not... Rim and I here, um, and we bought two little suckling pigs. We raised the pigs, and uh, a few months in, you know, they, they don't die on their own. It's, that's not the automatic part. So we had a, we had a Haitian friend who was a missionary's friends that brought him to college with us, and we were friends with him, and he knew how to do the whole thing. And he just laughed and laughed as we tried to, you know, do the, what everyone does when they want pork in the rest of the world. And... Uh, so we were laughing about, you know, how hard it was, the smell, uh, how we'd never wanted to do that again. It was horrific. Um, and uh, we, we, I realized in that moment that this is, this is actually um, a problem. That we're, uh, as, as people, largely detached from our food. Um, and I'm not going into any, like, major hippie. Not all of us need to be raising pigs or whatever. But it is, it is worth reflecting on, and we will, we will do that today, about how our food has become totally detached from our regular lives. Totally detached. And you might think that Christianity doesn't have tons to say about this topic, but it does. Plenty. So back to 42. The body of believers devotes themselves to the teaching and the breaking of a bread. Then 46, a few verses later. Day by day, attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes, this is the, the point, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. So to just set things straight real quick, I would be uh, frustrated with myself if I didn't acknowledge this at the beginning, but when people talk about the breaking of bread in Acts chapter 2, typically what they're talking about is Eucharist. The larger Christian tradition, for the most part, has referred to, has interpreted this portion of Acts is the Eucharist. And it's about the two-fold ministry of the church, the two services, service of 
the table and the service of the word. Um, so just to have my bases covered, that's what this text is about, I think. But I'm not going to talk just about that. We're going to go in a different direction. Because I think when you look at verse 42, uh, as it goes into 43, 47, that it's in light of this larger image of how Christians are all living together. It's about life together. That's what the whole sequence is about. And one of the fundamental, thi- the fundamental ways that people live together and interact with one another, they develop friendships and develop companionship, is through gathering, eating, and sharing meals. And that's been a fundamental part of human existence forever, to say the obvious. Companion, you probably know this, in fact, is a word for breaking bread with someone else. Companion, that's French. Um, so our relationship with food, I think, though, has become, uh, relationship with food and eating has become entirely distorted. I'm convinced of this. It's been detached. It's untheological. I'd even say that our reflection about food and eating is anti-theological for the large, in large measure. And our lives, I think, have suffered for it. Here's what I mean. First off, we're going to go on a little trip back in time, just to a degree. Our way of eating, as most of y'all probably know, is radically different from the way people would have eaten more than two, so 200 years ago, but before. The past 200 years have been a total uh, sea change in how we eat, prepare our food, share meals with one another, engage with food in a meaningful way. So we'll just go through, here's some quick things that are worth pointing out. So before the Industrial Revolution, before early 19th century, the global population was and had always been less than 1 billion people. In the early 2000s, it's 6.5 billion people. So you, you see an escalation of the human population that actually keeps escalating every year, that gets steeper and steeper. Here's another one. Before the early 20th century, the average lifespan was around 35. As the Industrial Revolution swells, uh, greater availability of food and affordability of consistent food bumps the life expectancy up significantly. It then goes into the 40s. Then, some of you all know this, it's vaccines, the discovery of vaccines and sanitation, life expectancy actually doubles in nearly all Western societies to around the age of 80. You just need to pause and think about this. This has never happened. People will sort of argue about how Greeks say people could live long then, but it's, it's true in little pockets. For the most part, the average lifespan was 35. You were always around people who died. It's just part of human life, and most of it was because of food. As a side note, that's interesting when you think about Jesus as well. Jesus didn't die young. He died just like every other human being. Same, same life expectancy. So not only are people living incredibly longer lives, but they are, there are way more of them. Here's one final detail that just feel like I have to go into. Before the Industrial Revolution, I was talking with a friend who uh, does demography for uh, the State Department. He says, close to 95% of all of the world's population lived within subsistence agricultural economies. What that means, <clears throat> basically that means that people are living in a small enough scale that all of their food is for them. And all of the food that they make, they've all brought it together themselves. So the production of food, the gathering of food, the sharing of food, it's all for the people within local communities. And um, there's no, surplus is used in a variety of different ways. 
So most food would have been produced explicitly for the survival of local populations. What this means, this is important, this is an interesting thing, is that the production of food was not predictable. Famines, blights, floods, rain, all these things, it meant that you didn't know if you were going to have food. It was done with enormous amounts of joint sacrifice, uh, people working together to produce it, completely dependent on one another, and it was a, if not the, major endeavor of human survival. This just would have been a brute fact of human, human existence for all of time. And I think when you start to step back a little bit and think about this theologically, this is where it becomes relevant. Because I, th I think if you lived as they did before, we, before the Industrial Revolution, you would have thought of food as a means of God's grace, perhaps. At the very least, you would have thought of weather, of all of the ways that food was produced is wrapped up and God's work in, in your life. You interpreted everything theologically. Furthermore, here's the other part. Food was produced side by side with other people whom you probably knew. You were totally dependent on them. And those people you didn't pick. You just happened to live in the town where they lived. You didn't choose them, but your life depended on them. Second thing, food would have been life. I, I'd venture to say food was a kind of way of... Um, Food was life. To gather, prepare, share, and eat food would have been life. That wasn't just a metaphor for life. That was what your life consisted of and what you did with your family and with your friends. And so I'm, I go into all of this not to say that back then was somehow better or they were less sinful or uh, that they have a more, you know, they got it all figured out. All I'm trying to say is that our conditions for fruitful living under God have changed entirely. And I think most of us don't reflect on it particularly in regard to food and eating, especially with Christians. So these were conditions for life under God, and I'd venture to say they were probably better conditions for life under God. Sure, your life expectancy was shorter, um, but it means you probably thought about your mortality. I'd love to see more people thinking about their mortality. <laughs> Sorry, we're bringing the house down a little bit, and we'll get up there. It's coming better. We'll bring it back around. But before you do that, <clears throat> I think... All of that, again, is lar largely changed. And I didn't do any like, major research here, but just think, think about these like, basic ideas. We eat food now that is often bad for us. Look at any of the fast food that you like. I mean, everybody, it is not good for you for the most part. We're largely disconnected to the production of food. Now, who knows where a Big Mac came from? I have no idea. We have all manner of abnormal behavior regarding food that's most certainly part of a culture that is deeply confused about its relationship with food and eating. I'm thinking of um, anorexia, bulimia, um, binge eating, all of these. These are habits that tons of people in our churches deal with, and they're serious. They're real. And I don't want to go into them because that's, that's beyond my area of expertise, but these are absolutely wrapped up in how we understand food. Other things, think of dieting cultures. They come and they go. They, I think, convict us and often they confuse us. And they typically take on this sense of religious seriousness, you know. But I would argue they seem largely about preference. They're a way for people to express their preferences or their desires or to uh, self-fulfill their own sort of vision of what the good life is. We often eat in isolation. 
alone or on the go. I had breakfast in the car on the way here this morning. Wasn't all that fulfilling. (laughs) Although this was. We often waste enormous amounts of food. I mean, the statistics for that are just insane. We waste huge amounts of food. We have foodie cultures, and I'm all for enjoying food. Uh, But this largely, to me, seems experiential. It's more about uh, gaining a sort of experience um, or having fun, but it's, it's not substantive, typically. So the other way, we don't typically reflect on or feel the great need for food in most parts of our world, and we don't think about how our, uh, the, the availability of our food systems is actually dependent on the lack of availability of other food systems. There's a reason our food is cheap, because it isn't made here. I don't know anything about economics, so I'm not going that far. I'm just saying there's a correlation there. It's worth reflecting on. Also, most of us don't think that food really costs anything. We have food that is so cheap. I mean, there are, are plenty of places where you can go and spend $3 and basically fill your, fill your belly. Whether it's good for you or not, it's probably not. But it's everywhere. And I think Christians, in large measure, have just reflected the culture that exists around us. I mean, can you think of ways that the, the way the church eats that's any different than the way the rest of the world eats? I tried for, like, oh, two weeks. Can't really think of any ways. I mean, we have potlucks. Our potlucks are good, probably. Potlucks, maybe. But I think that that's worth thinking about, the fact that there is no distinction in one of the most basic ways that we live between us and the rest of the world. And I'm not saying that we all need to be Jewish or Muslim or be like them who have these kind of elaborate rituals of eating, but I'm saying that all of your life should reflect something about who God is to you, and eating should be one of those ways. I have seen some people sort of engage this topic. One is just health, eating and health. You see all kinds of magazines about health and what better living looks like. But I don't know that that's actually bound to anything other than personal control, typically. I think usually people talk about health as a means of controlling their own life, controlling their own body weight, controlling the the value of their life, but it has less to do about God. Here's another way. World hunger. Christians have been excellent, in fact, at uh, responding to major problems in the world. Of all of the great religious traditions, Christianity is, is up there with, with their compassion for the poor and the unjust. But our thought about how our economic practices and our agricultural practices impact other parts of the world doesn't seem, I don't see a lot of uh, Christian demographers or Christian social scientists doing work in that. I know of a few, but I think that's worth thinking about, our impact on world hunger. And finally, I think eating as an experience. You know, in the past, we would have called eating as an experience gluttony. I think that word sort of falls on deaf ears these days because basically we just think of people who got, you know, like a king in like medieval England or something with a, with a lamb bone or something. But that's not what, binge, that's not what uh, gluttony is. Gluttony is essentially binge eating. It's eating just to feel a particular way, to make yourself feel better. That's what gluttony is. And I say, see plenty of Christians doing that. So I gave this my best shot. I want you all also, afterward, come up to me. You, you can even engage with me at the end of this. I want to think about what good Christian eating looks like. What is Christian eating and what is a Christian response to food? 
I'm convinced this is important. And in fact, I, would, I really would love your input. I want to do something with this. So going back to, to uh, verse 30, well, it's 42, what is it? Day by day, attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes. Listen to this part again closely. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. I think that when we focus on that, we can distill a few commitments that are really valuable that also correlate to some important practices. Here's the first one. If you have a pen or paper, I mean, I'm not saying my ideas are awesome, but I did think about it for a week or so, so <laughs> there's that. I have this collar now, so, <laughs> which I didn't even remember the fasteners for it. I had to get them from Ken on the way here. <laughs> okay, here's the first one. Good Christian eating recognizes that food comes from God. I think that is the core of it, in fact. Good food comes from God. You did nothing to actually make corn grow. You can put all the pesticides, all of the, any sort of agricultural science you want to do, but it comes from God. You cannot make a thing of corn grow. You you, you can't birth a, a pig. It comes from God. And so in light of that truth, I think there are three practices that are helpful. Fasting, prayer, and fear. Fasting, shortly. In a world of excess, probably the most important practice I think Christians could do again is to fast. makes you realize that you're dependent on God for all that you are. Your whole life is dependent on God. Think together ways that you might fast as one uh, body. Prayer. Thank God for the food that you have. You didn't make it. You might have prepared it. You didn't create it. You can't create anything. That's not what humans can do. Creatures do not create. The third practice is fear. Seek out God in humility. Recognize uh, that your life is actually in his hands. And again, this is what I'm getting at. In the past, I think you would have realized that. Your life was literally in God's hands. Most people died in ways that were related to food. We don't have to deal with that. It's probably a good practice to place your hands in God's own, place your life in God's own hands. Okay, so second way of good Christian eating. Good Christian eating recognizes that food is produced through the work of human hands. It's not created through human hands, it's produced through human hands. And I have three uh, also, you know, practices that, that follow through with that. The first one is repentance. Repentance is requisite in a society where they expect food to be automatic, because it isn't. It doesn't appear out of nowhere, and as, you know, there's the, uh, we live in a fallen world. You have to produce food with the labor of human toil. It comes from somewhere. Repent for not thanking those around you who have helped prepare the food that you eat. So, Pinky, wherever you are, thank you. Uh, intentional relationships with producers. I think in, the, in years past, it would have been common for you to know all of the people that you depended on for your common life. Try and, maybe not artificially, but in some more intentional ways, get to know the people who either make or prepare or grow your food. I'm not saying everybody needs to go to the farmer's market every single day, but maybe that's not a bad idea. Know the people who produce your food. A third one, cooking. Cooking, I think, is a profound practice of, of uh, gathering together with people 
to spend time with them, to listen to them. When you cook, you can't do other stuff all that well, or at least I can't. It might just mean I'm a bad cook. But I can't do other things. I have to spend time with the people I'm around. Then, uh, finally, this one, this was out of nowhere a little bit. But I've noticed this, especially in Charleston, it was a big, huge eating culture, culture. When people eat out, they never talk about the food they're eating, which is bizarre to me. When you go eat somewhere that people have uh, intentionally crafted the food with real care, I challenge you, go do that next time you eat at a good restaurant. doesn't have to be fancy or whatever, but a place that you enjoy. Go with your friend or whoever is with you, and I want you to only talk about the food, what you like about it, what the texture is like, the flavors that it finishes with, the things that uh, make you appreciate it, that it's the product of human hands. It's created in a, a kind of mirror reflection of our God's good creation. Appreciate food. The third, uh, the, the third value of Christian eating Recognize, this is the final one, don't worry guys. Recognize that food and eating is a basic way that we will be together as a body. And the three practices of this are sharing, gathering, and celebrating. Sharing. When you cook, cook for other people. My wife and I don't cook that much, but when we do cook and try and, no, we cook plenty, we don't cook well plenty. But when we do cook well, we usually invite our neighbors over. It's a blessing, it's a huge gift to us and to them. It will help you craft relationships with other people. Second, uh, second kind of outwardly expressed value is gathering. When you gather with people, do it uh, intentionally. Don't just invite people over to do, um, I don't know what people do around here. In Charleston, you just meet up for drinks or something. Do something a little more intentional. Gather people in an intentional way where you either cook food or appreciate food together. And then the third kind of outward uh, way of expressing a recognition that food is how we gather is celebrating. I'm convinced, especially in Charleston at least, most people celebrate way too often for basically nothing. <laughs> we should celebrate more. We should celebrate more and more richly, more often maybe, uh, and with more vigor. One of the ways I think that you could do all of these three things is to remove technology from all of your eating. What if all of the meals that you ate, you didn't use, look at your phone at all? Some of you think that would be easy, but for people my age, that's usually hard. All meals, what if they were tech-free? Anyway, the, we could go on and on about some of the habits that might do this, but I, I, I just hope you see that this all, I think, matters. All of this actually matters because all of these practices, all of these ways of eating actually shape your soul. They shape your life, they shape your soul, and they shape your relationships. So I would like you to kind of imagine with me what this would look like. You know, what would it look like for Christians to think uh, more intentionally about eating? I think you would imagine, uh, if, as I'm trying to imagine this, I'm imagining um, a way of experiencing a means of grace three times a day. How incredible would that be? Or imagine if you invited people into your home and it wasn't just about the spread, uh, but about how God provided it. What if you kind of let out that aura? Also, imagine if your kids grew up gracious for food and the relational connections that come with it. Imagine if all of your celebrating were actually attractive to other people because it was filled with genu genuine joy and meaning. 
actually attached to something that was life-giving and profound and wasn't just a Friday night. Finally, I'd encourage you to imagine Jesus. Imagine Jesus, who is the one who himself eats. Have you ever thought about that? I'm not going to give any answers here, but have you thought about the fact that Jesus eats? Jesus consumes, the creator consumes what he has made. He's just like the men and women whom he has made. He shares meals with us. He shares his life with us. And even more, he, he feeds us. He shares life with us by giving us his everlasting life. So um, to close, I just wanted to sort of push us in a, in a direction. Um, eating is, you know, is throughout all of scripture. In fact, it might be one of the most common themes in scripture. Food, eating, banquet, feasting, fasting. Uh, it's literally everywhere. But do you all remember that this part at the end of John where... Um, Jesus, Peter is out fishing, he recognizes Jesus, uh, and he jumps out of the boat, he swims to go meet his Savior, he recognizes him. So I'm just going to read you a little portion of it. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. That's our life right now. That's what our eating looks like in this moment. That's what it should look like. Now hold on, there's one more that I have to read. This is from Revelation, the very end. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. That's the meal to come. That's the eating that we will have. So I hope that you will eat like Peter under the tutelage of Jesus. I hope that all of your meals will feel like that meal will take on the intentionality and quality, mystery of that meal. And I hope that they do that because they're preparing for a particular meal that the rest of the world doesn't know, but you do. The great wedding feast of the Lamb. That's the meal that we're preparing for. That's the meal that matters. And I hope that we become good eaters because we're going to do a lot of eating, it sounds like. Does that sound good? All right, in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. I don't know if y'all want to do this, but oh, yeah, go ahead. Thanks. Appreciate it. If y'all want, yeah, I have really spent the past two weeks thinking about eating and what Christian eating looks like. So I'm ready to talk about it. I'm a theologian. I like to debate. I like to argue. Um, I like to hear other people argue at me. Uh, I I would love to hear your thoughts. Y'all have any questions or ideas? Um, I'm game for it. We still have some time-ish. 
shoot, uh, you in the back first. Yeah, no, that's right. Neighboring, neighboring would have required food. It would always have required food for most of our church's history. So we need to think about how to incorporate food and neighboring back together. I don't think they can happen without one another. I think it's just the, the fertile soil in which neighboring happens. Thanks. No, I think that's right. And again, I don't want to, I'm, I'm trying not to make a, this was better, now we're in the bad sort of thing. I, that's not really what I'm trying. I'm just saying that there are, there are particular conditions that recast sin into a different sort of proximity and way of interacting with us. And we have to uh, address those new ways of being sinful in a broken world that's always been sinful and always been broken, uh, but has different conditions now than it has ever. So you talked about celebrating, and um, Jesus' first miracle was turning water to wine at a wedding feast. And um, in Jewish culture, a wedding, everybody came together to celebrate a wedding, and it really brought the community together. It incorporated the art of neighboring and food and all these Happened at my wedding, too. It was a good party. Just kidding. Sorry. Keep going, Hunter. Yeah, you're fine. Yeah. What are some opportunities or instances do you think that as a culture we have to celebrate things that we're not taking advantage of currently? Uh, yeah, I, I've, I was just talking about this yesterday with some friends. I think um, confirmation, when young women and men come, become confirmed members of the church, they become adults in your church, they become fellow members of the church with all of you, you should celebrate that. You, like full on, you making it making it unfair. I mean, I think people in the South are good at celebrating and use that gift. Uh, so that's one that I think of. Um, celebrate less at football games. I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. I don't. Sorry, um, but do celebrate relational things. Anything that's in a relational opportunity to connect, you should show up and celebrate. My brother-in-law is opening a new uh, beer garden in D.C. in a few weeks. My wife and I are going to go. We're just, we, we have to, you know. It's a, he's thrown his life into it, and we're going to do it. We're going to go celebrate with him. And um, any excuse you can, any relational excuse you can find to celebrate, I just say go for it. Any others? All right. Thanks, you guys. I really appreciate you all having me. Thank you, and thanks for the food.